Hello, this is Real History, and I am Melissa. Today is Thursday, the 18th of January, 2024. And today I am talking with Mark, who lives in Sudbury, Ontario, Canada. And Mark has been a friend of mine, a friend of Alan's for a long time. And I talk to him regularly and uh, roped him into doing one of these with me. So, hey, Mark, how are you? Hi, Melissa. I'm doing fine, thanks. Good. So you want to talk about the weather for a minute? (laughs) It's really cold. Uh, Well, uh, we've actually been pretty lucky here uh, this year. We haven't had any snow really to speak of. Uh, We had a... Uh, a snowless Christmas, and uh, as of the third of the way through January or so far, we just received our first snowfall uh, just a couple of days ago, and it was uh, about a foot of snow, and we'll be expecting some more over the weekend, so pretty soon we'll be into a full-fledged winter as usual, but uh, so far the, uh, the snow shoveling has been at a minimum, which which suits me just fine. Yeah, that is really unusual because I think um, every year that I was there, there was at least there was some snow on the ground in at Christmas time, so that you get that customary January thaw for the. It's usually like the first couple of weeks in January, it warms up a little bit and then everything melts. Whatever snow you had on the ground usually melts and then it starts over again. But you didn't get the January thaw because there was nothing to thaw. No, uh, uh, and I think I think the reason for it, and, uh, and, and I mean the whole world knows this, I don't even really have to say this, it's uh, because of uh, man-made uh, climate change, because we're, pollut- we're polluting so much and putting out so much carbon dioxide that it's affecting our weather so dramatically that it's uh, it's caused you know it's caused this lack of snow this year. Um, of course, I'm being facetious. Oh shoot! I was going to play along with you and ask what we could do <laughs> to, <laughs> to turn well, this around. <laughs> we first of all, one thing we could do is put um, we could put butt plugs in cows. No, yep, yeah. It's the methane gas. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's the main the main problem. It's not human cause, it's the cows. Yeah. Well, there were a couple of things I was telling you before we I haven't had technical difficulties in a long while, but tonight we did and it took a long time to sort it out. So as all of that was working out, I was telling you that we're about to go in this weekend to four days and four nights where the temperatures drop well below freezing and they're even forecasting some snow or possibly freezing rain. Now, down here, that is an absolute crisis and mostly because the electrical grid failed. It's not taken care of and it failed in 2021. And a lot of people, you know, millions of people, I think, were without power in February of 2021. I wasn't here then. I was in Canada being um, heated by the wood-burning stove. 
But down here, people lost power. A few people actually died, which was sad. And so I had to run in and get a few things at the grocery store today as part of my errands. And no time have I seen the grocery store busier than it was today, including Thanksgiving and Christmas. It was a madhouse. I had to wait 10 minutes just to park to find a parking spot. And every, wow. you know, yeah, crazy. But I mean, I needed what I needed and there you go. But I, people are traumatized at the idea that they could be without power, they could be without food and water. And of course, preparation is always good. But that's what happens when somebody said, hey, it might get cold and snow in Texas. <laughs> so. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's uh it makes me wonder if uh, this is all part of the part of the program and there you know there's there's plans to uh, mess around with the uh, with the grid and stuff to to cause chaos in people's lives and stuff so you you got to wonder if if this is something that was something that was planned or not well yeah you always have to especially i mean I, I know at the, the chemtrails, the, the spraying is a, a global, a world, you know, it's an international phenomenon. People report it and send pictures from all over. But it, it's a rare day indeed that I go outside and can't see evidence of major spraying operation going on. Yeah. The funny yeah, thing is, you know, in Sudbury, because you live in Sudbury, and the the skies would be covered with chemtrails. And Alan would make the comment, there are, what, two or four major flights? I think it's only two really major flights that go in and out of the Sudbury Airport every day. It might be more, but it's not a lot. It's no, not a big not city. Right. Yeah. No. And the, the, the small craft that fly, there, there aren't that many of them. So you, you could pretend not to notice or not have any questions if you lived in a big city and saw this kind of flying going on all the time. But I mean, Sudbury's, there are very few people flying in and out of Sudbury Airport on a daily basis. Where do those trails come from? And they paint the sky. They sure do, and it uh, and it continues as it was before. When you're in Canada, it's the same thing is happening. Yeah. Although although they don't well, if if you know if you know what you're looking at, you can see them quite quite apparently. But uh, a few years back, it used to be even more blatant. It seems They've, it seems that they're they're doing more spraying now. Um, on the outskirts of the city and somehow bringing the trails into the city during the day that they've already sprayed on the outskirts. So there's not like a whole lot of, a whole lot of activity that's apparent as it used to be a few years ago. Mm -hmm. I just thought we would dive in and talk about whatever you, now that we got the weather out of the way, <laughs> whatever you want to talk about and, and just kind of let you take the lead here and pick a topic to go on well hmm well usually uh, in the past i've noticed that you've you've asked your guests uh, 
uh, how they how people woke up in the okay. first place. Would, well, let's would start there. Wake up. Let's start there. So, so we'll go we'll go back to that, and then we'll we'll lead on up to uh, how uh, how I met uh, Alan and yourself. Um, so, basically, throughout my whole lifetime, I always had this really uneasy feeling, and there was always something in the back of my mind that was like gnawing away at me, uh, like something wasn't right, but you know, it wasn't something that I could really put my finger on. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I ended up. I'm a, a chiropractor by trade. Um, I'm now retired at this point, but uh, I practiced for over 25 years. And while I was a chiropractor, a number of things happened with uh, legislation and such that that uh, made being a chiropractor very, uh, very burdensome. They put in so much bureaucracy and so much extra work that, uh, for things that really didn't need to be, really didn't need to be done. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was extra work that took up more of my time and I was already... Uh, extremely pushed to the limits as it was with uh, uh, with with time and, and how much time I was willing to put in to my practice and stuff and um, so it got to be quite tiresome but one of the things one of the things they did at uh, around the year 2000 is well in the late 1990s they put in a, a, a new health legislation that covered all different kinds of health practitioners in Ontario and the chiropractic portion of it um, had new rules, uh, such as they wanted you to do ongoing, continuing education. Mm-hmm. And on the surface, that sounds like a good idea. But the problem with it was that you know there was only certain courses that were that were offered, and you had to travel to Toronto usually for the courses and spend a whole bunch of money for a weekend and. And then, you know, not only that, but, you know, you'd end up coming back for Monday and you'd be exhausted from having to travel and stuff. And and the vast majority of times that I went to these seminars, I, I might have learned one or two one or two new things over the whole entire weekend, mm-hmm. but nothing that I couldn't have lived without knowing, necessarily. <laughs> they wanted you to do, like, three or four of these every year, which I was not happy with because as far as I was concerned I you know I had all kinds of reference books and I had a whole reference library on my on hand uh, at my office that I if I was having difficulty with something or not you know I needed to look up something about a, on a patient I would do so on on my own as ne- on an as needed basis but here they're trying to push these courses on you. Most of the stuff that they're teaching in the courses, you already know. Mm-hmm. So uh, it just got to be way too too time consuming and, and added more stress, et cetera. So another thing they put in was they, as chiropractors, the, the vast majority of chiropractors were not too keen on the idea of vaccinations, and I was in that camp as well. Uh, and, you know, being generally anti-medical, knowing that there are certain things in medicine that that are definitely needed and necessary, but the vast majority of of, of the Rockefeller medicine model was harmful to people's health, and uh, vaccinations being one of them. 
Well, in around the early 2000s, they put in new legislation that banned chiropractors from having any kind of literature in their office that spoke out against vaccinations. Really? That... Uh, and and the penalty for having such literature in your office was a one-year ban of your license and a $100,000 fine. Mark, you've never told me this. I, I believe I did tell you now on this at some point, but it's hard to it, yeah. it's hard to remember everything yeah. everybody's told you in your well, lifetime. Well, uh, yeah, that's. But uh, I'm pretty I'm pretty sure I did tell you guys that. But anyways, I wasn't too pleased with that. And then what happened? They brought in oh uh, the Ontario Health Insurance Plan used to be called OHIP. Now it's not called OHIP anymore. It's just uh, I don't know what it's called now, but not OHIP, but it used to be called OHIP. And OHIP used to cover a certain amount uh, every year for chiropractic care. And uh, they just one year decided they're going to just drop chiropractic from the plan, which caused a quite a quite a drop in income uh, for a time. It did it did catch up again after a couple of years, but. Uh, it took people a while to acclimate to having to pay the full cost out of their out of their pockets. So there was that, and then then they had it's it's all a blur now because it's so many years ago. But but uh, I, I remember I had to uh, travel out of town to a seminar, and uh, the seminar was they were explaining all the new rules that they had for chiropractors, and basically. So it was like a couple hours longer, whatever. They were talking about all this stuff, and at the end, the guy says, "The guy says, well, we're not quite sure exactly what they mean by all these rules. So you're going to have to, you're going to have to kind of figure it out on your own and interpret them the best you can." <laughs> so basically, they, they left us in a position that uh, the ambiguity of what they were what they were telling us to do left us open to all kinds of problems and stuff, uh, you know, that they could come into any chiropractor's office at any time and and go, oh, uh, you didn't uh, interpret this rule properly, so we're going to fine you or we're going to, you know, you're gonna, we're going to suspend your license for this long or whatever. So shortly after that, that I, I decided that uh, I couldn't, couldn't function anymore as a chiropractor, and plus I'd had... Uh, some health problems as well. I had a, a benign tumor taken out of my neck and throat, and it had caused a serious disruption in my sleep. Um, I've talked to you about this before, but between between what was happening with the bureaucracy and chiropractic, and my and my um, sleep, basically my sleep disorder, I, I had to retire from being a chiropractor. So and you were these, you were pretty young when you just, did that. Pardon me. You were pretty young when you retired, con- you know, compared comparatively. Yeah, well, I was mm-hmm. uh, forty-four or so. Yeah. So that was uh, that set my life in a totally different direction. But it also, it, I like to call it uh, somewhat of a blessing in disguise because what happened was now I had a lot of free time. And I had a lot of time to that I didn't have to be thinking about my business all the time and be on the treadmill and on in the rat race. And uh, it gave me time to uh, pursue some other some other ventures. 
one thing I started getting involved in was Toast. Have you heard of Toastmasters? Yes. Yeah. Toastmasters Club? Well, I joined Toastmasters Club. And I met uh, a guy at Toastmasters, and his name was Jan, and really, really great guy, really smart guy. And uh, we became friends, and uh, Jan introduced me to a video by Aaron Russo called ah, Freedom to Fascism. Yes, yeah. I'm sure... I'm sure you're aware of that yeah. video. Yeah. Um, I'm pretty sure that Aaron Russo, being a director from Hollywood, was Hollywood was probably controlled opposition to some mm-hmm. to some degree. Can I ask um, you a question before a- you go into the content of what you learned, just about Toastmasters? A lot of times when people say that they they joined Toastmasters or they were interested in going, it's because they have a fear of public speaking or they have, they're shy and they want to overcome that or they're having to do some speech making for their job and so they want to hone their skills. What prompted you to want to join Toastmasters? Well, it was uh, an interesting, uh, an interesting uh, venue to to learn. I, I wasn't really shy speaking in front of people. I sp- I've spoken in front of people a number of times before, so that was not an issue. I learned lots of different ways to to prepare speeches and stuff and to present them properly. It was quite good, except uh, it, there was there was a lot of lot of too many rules to follow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It was it was too it was too structured for me in the end, mm-hmm. so I ended up quitting. But I, I joined just because uh, I had free time and I and I I just wanted to explore explore that avenue mm-hmm. uh, basically. So, so now you're there, you're meeting people, and you've got your. Worldview is opened up a little bit by Aaron Russo from Freedom to Fascism. Right. So uh, I watched that video, and a lot of it hit home with me. And and I and I could see the I could I could from my life own life experiences and observations, I could see that what he was, a lot of what he was saying was true and stuff. But it didn't really hit me. In a way that made me want to pursue that line of, of of research any deeper, so I kind of sloughed it off a little bit. So that was around 2008 or so. And then another thing I did was I joined uh, an improv class, which again was real, a lot of fun and uh, gave me a lot of it helped me out a lot as far as uh, learning how to do comedy and stuff in front of people and and just just the improvisation was very very helpful and and a lot of fun again because i'd been off work i wouldn't have i probably wouldn't have joined toastmasters and i wouldn't have joined the improv class i wouldn't have ended up meeting at improv class i met a guy in improv class named dave Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) i I know dave Uh, yeah we were talking about dave's but anyways, uh, this guy named Dave, he kind of reintroduced me to this the, uh, information along the lines of the Aaron Russo film. And he really spent a lot of time, I spent a lot of time talking with him. 
both in person and on the phone, like hours a day for like probably a couple months at least. Mm-hmm. And he was telling me all kinds of stuff, and, and I, so I started. And he was he was uh, pointing out different people to listen to and stuff. And of course, one of the first people that he uh, he told me to start listening to is Alex Jones, which is uh, most people's uh, introduction into this. Uh, uh, into this type of uh, topic and David Ike as well uh, so I listened a lot to those guys Dave was the guy who got me really got the ball rolling as far as making me want to learn uh, about what was going on no one had to like I didn't never at any time did I ever like like you, like you know that most people when they're presented with this kind of material they they just zone out right away and they want to have nothing to do with it well I was just the opposite I was like the, the more I started learning the more I wanted to learn so over the period that was uh, so I met Dave around the end of 2009 and then 2010 I was listening to a lot of stuff and then 2011 came along and Dave was involved with helping to helping with the Occupy movement. Do you remember the Occupy? Oh, sure, sure. Uh, the Occupy movements. That were, well, mm-hmm. of course, that was all controlled and, and uh, perpetrated from the top. Uh, however, I did not realize this at the time because I was still rather new to the scene and, and hadn't put a lot of stuff together yet. So I went to the Occupy site in Sudbury, which is at a park, and people a bunch of people had set up tents and stuff and this was in october it was starting to get pretty pretty chilly out and it went from from basically the middle of october till the first week in december about six weeks long the first the first week that i went to occupy i was on facebook which i haven't been on facebook for many years now i just despise despise that platform and, and I really have nothing to do with it anymore but at the time uh, I had a Facebook page and I was using it to, uh, to to speak with other people about the Occupy movement and whatever and I put a post on there about something and uh, apparently my my post went viral across Canada for some reason from what I said uh, it was about a policeman that stopped and talked to me on the street, and and, and he and he told me that uh, that the police were, as a policeman, he was happy that uh, that I was doing what I was doing, and and to keep up the good work and stuff. And looking back on it now, I think that you know, he he was just probably just part of the part of the whole the whole crowd, and he was just trying to um, trying to keep people uh, interested in doing the Occupy thing. But anyways, uh, at the time, I thought it was uh, inspiring that this police officer would... Anyways, so I put a post on Facebook about it, and it went viral, and I received a, a message back from this guy in, uh, in British Columbia. His name was uh, Alex Hunter, and I know that you know Alex, because mm-hmm. Alex Alex was really instrumental in, in, in um, helping me understand to another level what was going on and basically i was only two or three days into the occupy movement when i made my post and and alex replied back to me and i ended up talking to alex on the phone quite a bit 
And Alex started to explain to me that the Occupy movement was a controlled was a controlled movement, and explaining all you know the different aspects to it. So it was very helpful because from that point on, I didn't really necessarily I I went to the Occupy site every day, mm -hmm. and I participated. I helped uh, I helped. Uh, take garbage away from the site and I did some stuff to, to help out and stuff but I never I never stayed in any tents overnight or I didn't participate in any of the protest marches at all because as far as I was concerned the marches themselves were uh, were a farce mm -hmm. uh, which uh, I just suspected at that point but uh, now I'm absolutely sure that they're a farce so I was basically there as a passive observer in front of and basing my observing on what Alex was telling me, which was, you know, of course, that it was controlled. So when I would go there, I would I would try to figure out who was who was who in the zoo, as far <laughs> as who was like running things, and and I would I would say certain things on purpose to certain people that I suspected were part of of the the control of this um just to see how they would respond and stuff and usually i would i would ask them loaded questions that um that i uh, that if they answered in a certain way i would know that they were for sure part of it and stuff so mm -hmm. so anyways uh, over the six weeks i kind of had fun with that and uh and and learned that <laughs> i mean i could write a, a little a little book just on that six weeks experience but but uh, it was really interesting. So Alex, uh, so Alex really helped me out in that regard. But Alex is also the person that told me about Alan, mm -hmm. Alan Watt, mm -hmm. and I had never heard of Alan Watt before. And Alex told me about Alan and told me that Alan lived right near Sudbury, basically in Sudbury almost. And I was like, wow, that's pretty cool. So I started. Uh, I checked out his website and listened to his interviews. Listened to his interviews he had with Alex Jones and and, and listened to Alan's RBN radio show. I just have to and, too. Um, but I don't want to make you lose your train of thought, but I just have to give a little shout to Alex because Alex himself did a lot of good work over the years, particularly focused on uh, in the area of electronic harassment. And the right. the ways in which, especially, I, you know, some people say, well, why don't you talk about targeted individuals? Well, Alan did early on, and he, he spoke with Eleanor way back when, and that was a, a focus of what she was doing. But what Alex was showing is this isn't just a targeted individual who is getting electronic harassment, and he he did some good work in that area, and he was also a very good guy to Alan. You know, when when he was hospitalized, he sent this major care package of um, you know seaweed and green things and superfoods and you know just very very good nutritious things. And then Alex was also that I'm blanking on the uh, the German farmer from the east coast of Canada. Uh, Werner Bach. Thank you, Werner. Uh, and sadly, Werner passed away probably about four or five years ago now. But um, oh, did he? 
Yeah, if I, I'm, I'm just kind of scrolling through the phone book uh, because yes, I, he is deceased 2019 from New Brunswick, but he yeah. had documented a lot of things that had been done to his cattle, his livestock. And he yeah. w- he was such a good guy and an interesting fellow. Had come over from Germany and just wanted to be left alone to raise his animals. He was a, a sincere Christian and married and had you know le- just liked his life. But he was getting very very strange things happening to his animals that included making them sick and killing them. And this was very well documented. I mean, he sent Alan incredible, uh, because he had that, I I, I don't want to make a gross generalization, but he had that German mindset that is very detailed in the way they approach information and keep track of things. And it was very clear that he cared deeply about his animals that that this was a form of harassment that he'd been under from the government for quite a long time and then ended up being charged by the government. When he tried to sue them for destroying his livestock, they said that he was, that, that this was a frivolous lawsuit and, and they charged him with cruelty to animals, which nothing could be further from the truth. But anyway, the point is Alex brought attention to a lot of different things over the years, um, both to Alan and to the world at large. Yeah, yeah, he's very, very knowledgeable, and uh, he's a, a truth warrior for sure. Mm-hmm. Now, Alex says, um, "Hey, by the way, Alan, what lives in Sudbury?" Then, I mean, I know what happened yeah, so, next, but <laughs> yeah. So I, um, I asked Alex. Uh, to, to mention to Alan on the phone next time he talked, because he talked to Alan from fairly regularly, I believe, on the phone. Mm-hmm. And I, I asked him if he could ask Alan, uh, you know, if I could if I could actually meet him, because he lives so close. I thought it would be a shame not to meet him, someone, you know, someone so knowledgeable. And, um, uh, you know, I was just dying to, to meet Alan, but uh, I didn't want to uh, be too intrusive. And so... So Alex, I guess, did mention Alan a couple of times that I would like to meet him, and uh, nothing, nothing happened from that. And of course, Alan was busy enough with other stuff; I could understand that. So I ended up writing a letter myself to Alan, uh, you know, telling him a little bit more about myself. And I recall uh, saying things like, uh, you know, it's a shame that you're 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 living by yourself and you don't have you know anybody to anybody to really any friends to be around or anything i said uh, you know you should you should consider coming into town and maybe you know i've got some friends that would like to hear you talk and stuff maybe you can do that or whatever so i put that in a letter and that was at uh, i would say at the beginning of 2012 or so so i i let that sit for a few months and then i didn't get any reply back so so I was thinking, you know what? If, um, I don't think that unless I do something more drastic to, to meet <laughs> Alan, that I'll ever get to I'll ever get to meet him. So I, 
I got I got a little bold and basically his his address was on his website. So mm-hmm. I was like, well, his address is right here. So so I I took a drive down to uh, it's about probably about twenty five minute drive from my place down to down to where Alan was living, and uh, I showed up at his door one one uh, cool winter day and knocked on his door and I could hear some rustling around inside so I knew he was in there and it and, and he he wasn't coming to the door and uh so I just I just yelled from the outside I said I said hey Alan it's Mark uh, you know uh from Sudbury I I just wanted to say hi to you and meet you so a minute later he opened up the back door and he popped his head out <clears throat> he was looking a little a little perturbed and i was kind of expecting that because you know i know he was a private guy and he didn't really probably take kindly to having people just show up his door and stuff so i really felt you know i felt i wasn't wasn't at ease with doing that but it was it was a step that i was i was willing to take to meet him so he came outside well he didn't come outside he actually stood at the door uh, and talked to me for like a, about a half an hour, and uh, so that was sometime around I would say March of 2012. And he said to me, he says, uh, he says, please don't show up here anymore without, you know, uh, on, without giving any notice of you showing up. So uh, I waited a, a whole year almost, and. I didn't realize I could phone him, so I was like, "I really got to meet him and talk to him again." So, <laughs> so I, I actually went out to his place again, and did the same thing. Knocked on his door, and he, this time, this time he he was little. He wasn't quite taken aback as much as the first time, although even the first time he was pretty pretty nice and stuff. But this time he was a little bit uh, a more a little bit more accommodating, and he actually a couple lawn chairs and we sat outside and it was a kind of a cool day and he wasn't really didn't really have his coat on and stuff so he was we we sat there and we talked for like an hour uh, with the with the uh, lawn chairs in the snow and this time though he uh, I guess he realized I you know I I wasn't of any threat probably and I I had good intentions at heart and uh, maybe it would be good to have someone local that he could you know count on for you know for maybe helping him out in certain things with certain things and stuff so this time he invited me to come back and and uh and uh and told me to phone him and and uh arrange a time to come next time and so i did that and the the very next time he came to visit uh he invited me into his place and we sat at the table and uh, we were a few minutes into talking, and all of a sudden, all of a sudden, this woman appeared from <laughs> I don't know from this from this room, um, and walked in. And I was kind of shocked because I didn't think Alan had anyone there with him other than his dog Hamish, who uh, I got to meet. And uh, so I was a bit taken aback, and and Alan introduced you uh, <laughs> as his bookkeeper. <laughs> Uh, and uh, uh, I, I thought, you know, my first thought was, wow, that's a, uh, I don't know any bookkeepers that, that uh, 
that visit people's houses and just go into other rooms in people's houses, but but uh, whatever. So I took it for face value, and then, well, then a few minutes later, I realized that you had actually <laughs> come in from the bedroom. So that got me thinking a little bit more, even about about uh, about um, about the, the veracity of what Alan just told me. <laughs> But uh, in hindsight, I realized that uh, he was just trying to protect your identity. Well, uh, I mean, the the bottom line is it took a long, long time to get anywhere into, even once you were at the kitchen table having tea and you had met his (laughs) accommodating bookkeeper. (laughs) 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 I bet bet you've never seen a bookkeeper make as much tea (laughs) as I did. No, yes, you you were more than a bookkeeper. Well, anyway, I'm just keeping track of time here, and we've actually been talking for 40 minutes, and I know you wanted to talk about some other stuff. Now, I I don't know if we'll have time today. We may have another conversation, because, but I just have to say, I, I have to say that once you... Once it was clear that I wasn't the bookkeeper and you were kind of over time because it took a few visits at the kitchen table, but you, you became a very good friend and my goodness, I, there were some situations where we just could not have managed without your help. And that was, there, there were many of them. I won't list them all, but the, I probably the biggest. I mean, without a doubt, the biggest one was when Alan was in the hospital, and you were there immediately, and you were there daily, and you were there uh, with all kinds of help and anything that was needed. And it was an extremely stressful time. And what, after the first day or two hurdle, and because it really did look very grave for Alan. I I can make light of what happened next because you showed up at the hospital with huge bottles of water. Now, I mean, I'm not talking about a quart of water or half gallon. I mean, huge bottles of water. And you said, he can't drink that hospital water. <laughs> I've brought him some good water and you brought good food and good water to the hospital and but in many many ways you were so helpful at such a stressful terrible time and i just wanted to say that in case we run out of time that that you were a that you were indeed you, you know you may have started off stalking him but you turned into a really good friend <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I know. That's what I felt like too. I felt like a stalker of sorts. I was like, "Oh man!" But, uh, but again, uh, curiosity killed the cat, you know. But it's funny with the as far as the hospital visit goes, because uh, the week before Alan ended up going into the hospital, he called me about I would say about five days before he ended up going in the hospital, and he he asked, he said, "Mark, he says." Uh, would you come out to my place and drive me into the hospital tomorrow? He says, I'm really mm-hmm. sick and I think I should go to the hospital. I was like, sure, Al, no problem. I said, what time do you want me to be there? So he told me the time and then the next morning came and I was just about ready to, to leave and come to pick him up and he phoned me and he said, Mark says, you know what? 
I don't think I want to go to the hospital or quite yet. And I was like, well, okay, you know, it's your call. So that got aborted. And then about two days later, he called me again and says, Mark, he says, I'm getting worse and worse. He says, I really need you to drive me to the hospital. And I was like, okay, Alan, what time do you want me to be there? And he goes, okay, well, tomorrow at this time. And, and then the next day I was all ready to leave the house again. And he called me again. And he says, no, Mark, I changed my mind again. I'm sorry, but, uh, but uh, I can't go to the hospital. Uh, I don't, I just, I don't trust him. And, you know, and, and I'm just going to wait it out here and see if I can tough it out on my own. And I was like, okay, uh, you know, again, it's your call. So, so it, uh, it happened a third time that um, that he was uh, he called me and he says Mark he says can you get me right to the hospital tomorrow and I was like sure Alan what time do you uh, uh, and he goes yeah, this time we're going to go for sure he says so uh, so it was, I remember it was a Friday morning I was supposed to be there at eleven o'clock and um, at about ten o'clock I received a frantic phone call from you and uh, telling me that. Um, Alan had started puking up blood and that you had to call the ambulance and that the ambulance had taken him into the hospital. So an hour later, it would have been me bringing him into the hospital. Just so that people aren't freaking out who are listening to this, Alan was very, very sick in 2016. And when he and he and Mark did not take him to the hospital, we went in an ambulance and it was very scary and he thought he was a goner at that time, and, and I did too. And he had been sick, and obviously nobody likes to go to the hospital. We know it, that you know not good things can happen at hospitals. But he ended up there, and the doctor, and then the next doctor, and then the specialist, and he, it, it, his was a very intense case there including for the first 48 hours the infectious disease specialist because they had no idea what was going on. But he had what one of the doctors described as the perfect storm of actually four different things happening to him, all more or less affecting his ability to breathe or you know, impeding his ability to breathe. So it was really scary. And, um, and we, you know, can make, we can make some jokes about it now, but it, it, that's, it wasn't funny at all. And the, it was a frightening, frightening episode in 2016. I have to add in here too, that that so-called specialist did a tremendous amount of harm to Alan because the admitting the ER physician looked at all of the tests that they ran initially and made a good call and put Alan on an expensive IV drip to target a problem that he saw. And he was on that for just under 48 hours, and it was making a difference. He could feel it. But when the specialist, the infectious disease slash whatever else he was a specialist in swaggered in he threw a hissy fit over it the cost he wasn't consulted he said a dozen tests needed to be run only six were done and they couldn't you know rule out false positives etc etc so he pulled him off of that was incredibly difficult and um 
just terrible to Alan, told me to shut up because I was simply trying to advocate. And so that was a specialist. And that medication that Alan was on, IV, that was so helpful, we eventually got a listener in Thailand to procure it. And that took some doing. We had to wire the money for the prescription. Unfortunately, drugs in Thailand aren't nearly as expensive as they are in the West. And that medicine was confiscated at the border, and this was not a class four medication. So that should not have happened. And ultimately, we had to get yet another listener working in conjunction with the original. This was smuggled out of Thailand into England and then carefully packaged and sent again to Canada. And Alan did get it a few months later, and it was very helpful. And, you know, who knows the difference that it would have made um, long-term on Alan's health if he'd been able to stay on that initial IV drip for a week or 10 days or whatever was necessary because the pill form had its side effects and it was not nearly as fast acting, of course, as the IV. And he was, he had to be on that for six months. And then once Alan spoke out against, you know, about what this specialist had, had done and how he had behaved, mysteriously, just you know, oh, there you go. The specialist gets in touch with Alan and said, oh, my bad. I I see that there were a dozen tests run. I, I only saw six of them, and they there were no false positives in there, so you can have the medicine. I mean, but that was six months after the initial hospitalization. So that's the great health care system in Canada. And I, I know people, I was just speaking with someone yesterday uh, who is, has been on a waiting list, a terrible situation for a problem that's causing them all kinds of issues and pain, uh, and they've been on a wait list for four years for the proper specialist. So anyway, I just had to add that in there, lest you think that that specialist... <laughs> was actually helpful at the time. That was not the case. Yeah, yeah. It was a, a, a serious, touch-and-go, very scary time, and you were completely all the way there for Alan. And so, I mean, you... I was at the hospital every day, to, you know, except for a brief... You took me home to get a couple of things that he needed, um, but in eight days, I was always there. But, and, and including I slept in a cot beside the bed, but you, yeah. you were there every day. <laughs> yeah, I came yeah. to, I came to yeah. visit whenever I could, and, uh, well, every day, actually, I did, yes. Yeah. Uh, and uh, a, a couple of times I, you know, we, we wanted to make sure that Alan was a, a watched over at all times so a couple of times uh you and uh you and uh, there's another guy there another friend of yours named jason uh was there 
Uh, and I, th- I think that's okay to say too, because I, you know, I listened to the older talks, and Alan did say Jason by name as yeah. the webmaster, and yes, the no. and and Jason was not in Sudbury. I actually called the not long after. Well, that night, once he was checked into the hospital, I let Jason know what was going on, and he drove a great distance to be there. So, um, and he ended up staying at the house and taking care of Hamish. And this was such a horrible time because, you know, Hamish had cancer. Yeah. So, you know, it it was very stressful. But Jason was there and you were at the hospital and and we were all there and it was good. So. Mm -hmm. So, so those, those are the kinds of kind of things I look back on and, and uh, make me um, make me realize that that it was it was so worthwhile being kind of pushing my way into your life because because really I didn't have any bad intentions and I just really wanted to help in any way I could so being able to help in situations like that was uh, was uh, was very rewarding for me and uh and I felt like uh, I was contributing to to Alan's work in a in an indirect way by by helping him with other things, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. Well, you're welcome, and and it was it was my pleasure to to be able to help. I know uh, a couple other times I you know I lent Alan one of my spare spare vehicles one time for a few months and. And another time, another time his well broke down, and uh, I went there to help him replace the pump, and it was a, it was. That was a huge job. Was, <laughs> that was what's that? That was a huge job. Yeah, yeah, not and 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 to make matters worse, it was absolutely pouring rain that day. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I mean, out of in the last ten years, that had to be the worst rain day in the last. Ten years, I would say that I've that I've experienced. It was it was nasty. Mm-hmm. So, and uh, my girlfriend at the time made us a made us a bunch of soup, and we were able to have to come in out of the rain after getting the work done and sit down and and uh, eat up some nice uh, homemade soup. And so, you know, so the funny thing is, Mark, I still remember that soup. It was an amazingly delicious vegetarian. Um, minestrone. Yes. Veg- <laughs> Isn't that weird that I remember, but I do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's exactly what it was. Yeah, so. Uh, well, listen, it, um, in, in the last, oh, say, 10, 15 minutes that we have on this recording, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about? Or, um, I mean... I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you, you've had this, you've gone from Aaron Russo to the Occupy movement, you've um, gotten to know Alex Hunter, and then you met Alan, and so what we, we could say is that, that your truth-seeking really took off and got incredibly enriched, and you learned a lot in a short amount of time. I would say I absolutely did. Mm. Uh, I, I would say that 
learning all of this stuff is a double-edged sword. I'm extremely uh, in in the end. I'm extremely, extremely happy that I've learned all this stuff. Because let's face it, if you don't know the reality of the situation in the world that you're living in, you can't make decisions that are you can't make proper decisions the best you can without knowing the background information to to make those decisions. So, so in the end, knowing all this stuff has been has been. Uh, the, probably the best thing that's ever happened to me. However, when 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 I first started learning about this, and and this is something that uh, that a lot of people go through, is it's similar to it's similar to grieving a death in a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that uh, you go through different stages of grief for what you thought the world was, and and that that has to be put to put to rest. And you have to come to understand the new, what what reality really is. So I always always tell people that there's five different stages uh, in this, in in the grieving process, and I use the acronym DABDA D A B D A DABDA to explain each stage of of uh, the, the grieving period. So the so D A B D A. So it's denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. So of course uh, I went through all of those stages, and what you, and and I did what most people do while going through those stages, similar to grieving uh, the death of a close one is that people usually fluctuate back and forth between the first four stages to some extent, back and forth, before finally reaching the stage of acceptance. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you know, denial, anger, bargaining, and depression, so you're you're bouncing back and forth between those four things before you you finally come to a, uh, a stage where, you're, where you realize, yep, this is the way it is, mm-hmm. and um, there's... Nothing I can do about it because that's just the way it is. And at that point, you become somewhat more in a more peaceful uh, state of mind prevails, and and you finally come to the state the state of acceptance. Mm-hmm. Now, I went through, you know, when I was learning all this stuff, I also went through the the typical quote unquote truther. Um, phases of, of how I processed the information I got and how I relayed that information to people around me. And of course, at first you think that um, as someone privy to the truths of the world, I thought that everyone I knew should know and would mm-hmm. want to know mm-hmm. what I have learned. However... <laughs> As many as us, as many of us have been shocked and appalled to discover, not only do they not want to know, they get downright indignant and often extremely angry with you for bringing up this information. Which brings me to, uh, I, 
I know that you're aware of this. That uh, I, I at one point had a singing show. I, I do impersonations of singers. I can do over a, a hundred singers' voices, and and uh, I got uh, I ended up writing a lot of parody songs that uh, that I would perform, uh, and. Uh, I wrote, uh, I recently wrote a parody song uh, based on something that you said <laughs> to to someone in one of your real histories. Ah! And, and what you said to someone, and I can't remember, I didn't write, I wish I had wrote down who it was, but it doesn't really matter. But you said to that person that waking up is hard to do. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. And I also know. Um, no, I, I don't. Unfortunately, I don't. Yeah. So, yeah. so anyways, it doesn't really matter. But anyways, when you said that, it uh, it sparked an idea for for a parody song. Well, somehow, I know what so, song you parodied. <laughs> so, uh, so how about how about we finish this uh, our session off today with me? Uh, I have the karaoke background music for this song. I think it'll be too much for the microphone and my phone to take mm -hmm. in with me singing it and mm -hmm. with the background music, it might get garbled. Mm -hmm. So what I will do is uh, I'm willing to, <clears throat> even though my voice is a little, uh, is not as, as exercised as it used to be because I don't sing a lot anymore, um, I'm... I would like to sing an a cappello version of this song, if you would like to hear it. That would be great. I would love that. I kind of thought, even though you mentioned the improv class, and I, I thought, oh, we'll have to get to that in another conversation because we just ran out of time. Let's just hear it. I'm ready. Okay, so you remember a Neil Sedaka song called... Breaking, Breaking up, up is hard to do. do. I sure do. <laughs> okay. So this, the lyrics, I've, re I've rewritten the lyrics to that song. Uh, and when I rewrite lyrics to a song to make it into a parody, uh, I try to make it match almost exactly the original song. Mm -hmm. So that's what, I've, that's what I've done here. And um, that song, by the way, was... was uh, first performed in 1962. Oh wow! In the bath version, and it was, uh, and and then they re-released, re-released re it a few years later, in 1970, and it didn't hit the charts in 1962. But then they re-released it in a slow version in uh, the early 70s, and that actually I think went to number five on the charts or something. So, so it was a pretty popular song. So it was uh, breaking up is hard to do. <clears throat> So, I just got. I just typed it out today on my my word program. So I'll just get that up here, and I hope I get to. I haven't really had much of a chance to really practice it much because I just talked to you a few nights ago and told you that uh, I would finish this song. So, so, but no excuses. Okay. So. <laughs> So obviously, and so instead of uh, breaking up is hard to do, it's waking up is hard to do. Okay? So here we go. <clears throat> I'm going to take a drink of water just for a second. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Probably not good to talk for like an hour straight and then, and then try to sing, but 
my voice should be warmed up to some extent, but more for a speaking voice than a singing voice. Okay, so goes like this. Do 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 down do be do down down. Calm down, calm down, cause they're dumb down. Calm down, calm down, cause they're dumb down. Waking up is hard to do. It takes a shove for one to see. And it leaves your heart in misery. Once you know, then you'll be blue. Waking up is hard to do. Remember that you'll feel uptight. You'll be pissed and not sleep at night. Thinking how we've all been screwed. Waking up is hard on you. They say that waking up is hard to do. Cause now you know, know what's really true. Don't share your thoughts with a friend. They'll think you're breaking up and saying things you're making up to them. They'll beg of you. Don't tell them lies. And change the subject in the blink of an eye. And maybe then they'll call you cuckoo. Cause waking up is hard to do. Calm down, calm down, cause they're dumb down. Calm down, calm down, cause they're dumb down. Calm down, calm down, cause they're dumb down. Calm it down, doobie doo down. That's the end. Oh, I had to laugh silently. (laughs) (laughs) So you can re-listen to that and have a checklist. Oh, oh, that's so great. I'm glad that you um, got that ready to go. Yeah, that's excellent. Yeah, my voice is cracking a bit there. No, 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 that was great. So, yeah, I'm going to give you a little bit of applause. That's cool. Thank you, thank you. I'm bowing as we speak. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, my back just went out. Oh, <laughs> oh <laughs> chiropractor, heal yourself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This was a lot of fun. I knew that it would be for me, and I, I'm sure that other people will get something out of it and... and I thank you for taking the time to do it. I'm looking forward to talking to you again. I'm going to give you almost the last word, though, before I say goodnight. Is there anything else you wanted to say? I think uh, that's a good note to end on. I don't have anything to say. Well, I have lots to say, but we don't have time. Well, you do. You always do. We we have great long conversations. Oh my goodness! Sometimes we get yes, on the phone. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyway, that's I. That's why. That's why I don't want to say anything more because it uh, it, it could end it, up going it, way too long. Yep. So we'll we, just... we we could be at this for a few hours. But I wanted to say that next week on the twenty fifth, I will be talking with Malcolm, who lives in England. And I am looking forward to that conversation. And I thank you all for joining and listening in. And 
I am going to say goodnight and wish you a good week. Oh,